to BungaCast, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history. My name is Alex Hochuli in Sao Paulo, Brazil, and as usual, we are Philip Cunliffe in where? London? Canterbury? Canterbury, Canterbury. Canterbury. Um, we've been doing this for six years, but you just need to check. Uh, and George Hoare in London. Correct, in London. Yeah, hey. Very good. Um, all right, so we're doing another episode on film, um, and I think... Um, I'll let uh, George introduce, but there's been a lot of kind of satires of the bourgeoisie um, that have come about in the past couple of years and lots of discussion about it. We're not going to be doing those, but we are doing an older film, which in some ways set some of the template for kind of critical films about the bourgeoisie. Anyway, yeah. George. No, I think, yeah, I think that's useful context and go into, we can go into that a little bit more as well um, as we talk it through. But yeah, so today is um, this... Um, I think quite maddening film, interesting film, good film. If you haven't seen it, uh, listeners do do go and watch The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie, which is a 1972 film from Louis Brunel, who's most famous uh, for his 1922 surrealist film on Shan Andalou, which has that famous and um, yeah, even got into a pixie song um, scene with an eyeball being sliced open, which is pretty uh, strong stuff. So, yeah, this is a film that the Guardian review calls a deranged masterpiece and asks, well, and says, um, if you need something to watch uh, while getting Christmas lunch ready or waiting for Christmas lunch um, this year, watch this. So maybe we've we've gone for a Christmas film uh, inadvertently um, because you're basically watching a bunch of people not um, not get fed. So, yeah, this film um, won the Oscar for the best foreign language film in, in 1972. And the basic um, the basic plot, if you haven't seen it, is, um, yeah, you've got a group of uh, socialites, a group of uh, bourgeoisie or bourgeois or how, whatever the exact um, plural would be. And there's, you know, some interesting things that we could say about the language of, of the bourgeoisie, particularly in English. Um, and yeah, they want, they just want some food. They just want to, they just want to have a nice meal and then they get foiled uh, again and, and again. Um, and yeah, just one of the things that links this back to the Bader Meinhof complex, which we did last time, there are some terrorists who who come in at various different points in this, um, and I won't give the um, anything away about what happened. Um, but I think the central premise, or at least for our discussion, one of the starting points is that dinner is central to the bourgeoisie. It's about taste. It's about manners. It's a ceremony, um, and yeah, this is something which they uh, attempt to do over the course of the film. And yeah, as Alex said, there's satirical films about the bourgeoisie, about the middle classes, um, seem to be kind of going through a bit of a moment at the moment. Um, But there's also some recent films about eating, which kind of some of these would be included in that. Triangle of Sadness, The Menu, The Invitation. There's quite a few, actually. Um, And so I think, you know, all of those films and many more in different ways have um, their one of their key kind of reference points in this film, The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie. So, first question that I wanted to ask the two of you, um, is this a Christmas film? People people make kind of very outlandish claims that, that this or that, like Die Hard, you know, this is everyone's favourite Christmas film. Or Die Hard every- is a Christmas film. Okay, there's very, very strong opinions on that one. Um, but do you think this could be the next, like, you know, Christmas 2023? Are we going to predict that this is the the discourse? Well, Everyone's f- going to be 50, shouting about 51 this film? Years, 51 years on from its release, this becomes a Christmas it's not, film. It's not going to be no. a Christmas film, I don't. But I think the Gar- that is kind of a stroke of genius from the Guardian um, film critic in this context, I think, to see it as a kind of this, um, or to see Christmas, I suppose, as, you know, this kind of, how should I put it? It's a brilliant thought, you know, that you're kind of waiting to be fed and all these things kind of intercede. And I guess it raises the question, why why isn't it set around Christmas? Or why isn't there a Christmas scene as part of the film itself, right? Um, I don't know. There's so, I thought it was 
Yeah, they did miss a trick. So I think the idea of it as a Christmas film is good. Also because it's so disjointed. It's so kind of, uh, you know, it's kind of scenes kind of stuck together with no continuous um, development, either of plot or theme, even, I think, in a way, that it does make you think of that experience of like, it's something you could kind of dip in and out of while you're, I don't know, preparing the sprouts or turkey or whatever the hell it is, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's more of a pattern than it is a plot, right? So it's like this this thing keeps repeating. There are dreams and there are like long dream sequences and dreams within dreams. And it kind of repeats or takes place in a similar way, but in a different form. But again, always this idea of, I think, frustrated desire in some regard that people want to sit down and go eat and have this experience, um, which is central to their mores and customs, <laughs> but they're unable to. They're unable to kind of deliver on that. Something absurd keeps interrupting them. An army bursts in. Um, they turn up, the, the first scene is they turn up um, to a dinner party, but they turn up, seems, a day early. And then they, instead they go to a restaurant. Um, and then they're unable to have that because the the owner of the restaurant has died and is lay, laying there as they wait for the undertaker to turn up. So all these kind of sequences of, of um they never get to really actually sit down and eat. I think they never eat. In fact, even um, in the final scene, um, I don't think there's a problem with spoiling this because it doesn't hardly ruins anything. But um, the guests, the you know, the, the six principal characters, the sex that we're always trying to have dinner, um, get machine gunned down. But one of them kind of escapes and hides. But then he reaches up to try to get a little piece of ham because he's greedy and hasn't been and hasn't been able to eat. And as he does that, his hand is spotted and he gets machine gunned down, too. So he doesn't escape either. So, you know, like you never they never, um, uh, you know, they never con- consummate no. their uh, their dinner. Well, they, they do, but at the cost of at the cost of death. Like, it, I mean, in that way, it's a very French film because the the moral of the story, you could say, and that final scene is like the guy just loves that lamb, and and the lamb does look actually really nice. So he he just loves it so much that he's willing to die for his dinner, and that's a very French um, level of valuing food sufficiently highly that you're prepared to get machine gun down. Um, I said I wouldn't spoil it, but yeah, we have. I mean, it's again, it's, it doesn't really have a plot, right? So you you, you can't spoil it quite in them um, in that way. But yeah, so the, this. Sorry, more about the vibes. It's just it's know, more about the vibes. Know. It's a vibes film. Um, so yeah, the the um, the Guardian review also says that um, uh, I like to think that Buonellian, if that's the right way to pronounce it, also to some extent means Baudrillardian, the filmmaker satirizing a human world of weird simulations that don't just distort reality but divide people and perpetuate injustice. So we were discussing off air who is the most Baudrillardian guy of the three of us. And I think both of you wanted to assume this um, this mantle. So I don't know who to ask this question to. But is this right? Is this is it a kind of uh, Baudrillardian um, uh, like simulation that um, distorts reality and perpetuates injustice? I'm, is that I'm definitely that the, the most I'm definitely the most Baudrillardian. I don't, but I don't see it at all. You know, because I don't think it's a simulation. Well, to tell, know, tell like us, it's... just for listeners who might not know, who is Baudrillard? What's his basic idea and why would this be Baudrillardian or not? So Baudrillard had these, I mean, you know, I suppose it defies easy summary, but um, a kind of, uh, not exactly a postmodernist because he was critical of many of his peers, but he's a kind of uh, part of that era of 1970s, 1980s, post-structuralist, I suppose, French um, social theory, and um, but in a way, kind of more endearing and um, more intelligent. I think more long lasting, probably, probably still the more um, most relevant. Yeah, more long lasting. I mean, he was, you know, famously wrote a book called Forget Foucault, so he distanced himself from that movement as well, um, and he contributed these ideas of like hyper reality and um, simulation and simulacra. The idea that we're kind of drowning in. Um, Drowning in symbols that are um, produced, you know, that late capitalism kind of produces symbols, symbols more than industrial widgets. Um, this is a very, this is a very loose and, uh, you know, kind of uh, insubstantial summary. Um, but, in a, you know, I don't think it fits the bill for, um, for the movie because the movie is more about um, if it fits with any kind of classic social thinker, I think it would probably be Freud, not putting too fine a point on it. But, you know, the way in which dreams segue into reality, the absurdity of like 
interruption. The fact there's never actually consummation of desire. Um, so I don't think it, there isn't anything about simulation and certainly not like that there's some kind of tenuous connection to injustice in terms of the motivations of the characters yeah. or interacting. It's not, you know, that's not Baudrillard and that's not the film. So I don't think that sticks really. Yeah, and it's not, I think it's important to say at this point, it's not um, moralist, it's not a moralist film. Um, it's not really critical or satirical in a kind of scathing or biting way in the way that when we talk about satirical films, especially satires of class, they tend to be quite biting. Uh, and this isn't that. Or even also, heavy-handed. You no, know, if right. you compare it to like Triangle of Sadness or, sure. um, you know, the uh, Korean movie, what's it called? Parasite. Uh, Yes, sorry, Parasite, you know, like it's so, which are kind of, you know, I mean, they're good movies, you know, but I mean, they're not, they're far from this kind of weird, um, weird ethereal world of uh, of this film. But, you know? but also the the weirdness, I think it's important to say, is muted as well, right? So it's not this kind of hallucinogenic idea of, of or, or vision of uh, of surrealism you know it's all kind of fairly normal it's all kind of fairly real life you know there, there isn't anything kind of supernatural that happens there isn't any um other than some kind of dream sequences where people see the dead but that's again far more kind of freudian at a very very basic level um and it, rather than something supernatural um happening or kind of completely metaphysical and um so you know the action continues along in a fairly like normal basis and there's obviously weird twists and turns like um a whole bunch of soldiers burst into the dinner party but you know these are things that could happen it needs kind of explanation why should why it would happen and the, no explanation is proffered for why it does hence the absurdity of it but they're mm. not it's not unreal right and it's not and it's certainly not a baudrillardian kind of yeah, um, it's not prism it's not a, a, a kaleidoscope of images and, and symbols and whatever yeah no i think um and just to touch on the the point about dreams dreams within dreams within dreams they're not like ridiculous nightmarish or sort of sort of um dali-esque kind of you know magical dreams it's just strange it's, it's kind of like here here are the the manners which all these people um perform and this person is dreaming that that person dreamt that that person and all this all this other stuff i mean it's i may, maybe i'm making it sound a bit like inception that there are dreams within dreams within dreams but it doesn't really go for that um that mode of a presentation either it is quite sort of you know it's a bit disconcerting but as you were saying alex nothing in in it is completely fantastical um so i guess you know one of the reasons why we wanted to to do this um to have a look at this film was you know precisely to compare some of the you know one of these satires of the bourgeoisie or um critical kind of self-filmic self-criticism um of the 70s with with similar sort of films um today so yeah kicking that off then i guess what is the you know dinner um this is the the center of the the film this is how the bourgeoisie are presented in the film this is like the the, the prison through which we see these six main characters and the way that they interact and what they um you know the different perhaps kind of social roles that they represent one is um one is a bishop who wants to be a gardener. Um, some others, it's not really clear exactly what they do. There's some cocaine smuggling involved. There's an ambassador. Anyway, there's, there's a, we can go into, I guess, you know, what some of the characters mean and, and how they interact. But yeah, the first question. Um, yeah, so is is dinner the defining social ritual of the bourgeoisie? Um, or could it, could it have said to have been in the 70s? It's a display of wealth and manners, as I said at the top. Um so yeah, I mean, is is how central was this to the bourgeoisie of the seventies, and what therefore does the film say through um, the bourgeoisie? I mean, through the the way that the bourgeoisie dine in the film. Yeah, I, I don't. I, know. I, I, well, I guess it's worth saying, like, what does it say about them as they as they dine, and you know, what what is the critique of the bourgeoisie that's made here? I mean, it's nothing so blunt as that, but hypocrisy is the central i think theme you know in terms of what the bourgeoisie are skewered for but there's you know snobbery there's a kind of uh adherence to seemingly kind of pointless uh customs uh decorum etiquette and so on um but again always with the hypocrisy there's philandering there's uh, violence usually outsourced right which is important but occasionally subjective direct like they the, the diners themselves carry out violent acts um 
And I think it's also worth pointing out that, you know, the ambassador is an ambassador of a fictional um, Latin American country. Basically, say it's say it's um, Colombia. And then, in fact, yeah, I wanted to ask. I thought the Latin American setting is really important, actually, yeah, to the whole is. film. And I don't, but I couldn't really, I couldn't really draw out why that would be. Um, but it seems to be very important, like not only to motivate the, um, you know, the kind of the scenes with the terrorists and the military, but more basically than that, it's saying something using kind of Latin America as a backdrop for um, the bourgeoisie seems to me like important. But beyond, beyond me, I feel like I'm missing something so, when I watch so it. Yeah. So I, I, I like I, I had kind of didn't remember it from having watched you know I watched the film for the first time a long time ago, um, decades ago, and this time around I was really struck by the fact that this ambassador from Miranda, this fictional Latin American country, which they joke about because at some point one of the guests, I think it's the the Evek, um, the the bishop, um, bishop I think is a bishop, um, gets yeah, bishop. Uh, gets um, you know them confused and says something about Colombia. He says, "No, no, that's actually not my country." You know, um, so there's this whole kind of joke that goes around about you know it's not Mexico, it's not Guatemala, it's not uh, Argentina, it's not Colombia, but whatever. You know, he smuggles cocaine. Let's go with Colombia. But I think the point is that he's an ambassador, right? So it's a connection to political power, but also the fact that this is a Latin American bourgeoisie which has had its own republic for a long time. So in some ways similar to the French, but what's different is that there is a much higher degree of inequality, a much less, you know, it's a bourgeoisie which is threatened, but threatened kind of not through kind of higher rising wages eating into their profits, but through um, violence often, you know, kind of um, the FARC guerrillas, for example, in, in Colombia. And there is a you know, terrorist who makes an attempt at his life in the film, you know, indiscreet charm. Um, and yeah. so I think it's a bourgeoisie, which kind of is, is would in some sense be more aristocratic than the French bourgeoisie because it stands kind of much at a greater distance from the rest of its populace. Um, and he's an ambassador off in France away from the people, which at the same time makes it more brutal, but, but also a little bit more, um, he's able to indulge certain fantasies or idealisms. So at one point he comments that, um, you know, <laughs> actually there's a great, there's a scene which is great at the, be at the beginning where he, they bring in, there's making a, a, a gin martini and they bring in the motorist, the motorist, the chauffeur, the chauffeur and um, ask him to drink the martini and he downs it in one gulp and they, and the French guests will go, you know, oh, look at, look at how crude this man is. He doesn't have our uh, refined, Customs, it, you know, people have to be educated into this. Otherwise, they will never learn how to drink a martini properly. Um, and he responds, he's like, no, you know, that they can never, you know, they, the people can never be educated. You know, that that's it's beyond them. And, you know, I'm no reactionary, <laughs> he says, you know, it's just great sort of like the outright reactionary statements. And, and but always with the self-conception that I'm not reactionary. I'm not like one of those, you know, I'm a, I'm a nice bourgeois. Yeah. And even in this conversation he has with a terrorist who comes to kill him or, um, you know, kidnap him we don't know um he says you know i'm I, I identify with you you know we're quite the same you know we, we share the same ideas it's just that i don't believe in violence um and there's this whole pretense of him being kind of idealistic a man of um a republican man of thought or whatever which is a complete pretense it's hypocritical and i think that but it requires a south american <laughs> to do mm. that i think yeah i guess and it, it plays out in a quite distinct way where um it requires a bit of explanation. So these they're about to have dinner and then all these soldiers turn up because they're staying at this guy's house while they're doing maneuvers, which, you know, whatever. Um, so then he invites this colonel, invites the, the main characters to his house for dinner. And that, so they all go and then the ambassador, um, the, the colonel is, is very rude and he insults the ambassador's country by saying that Miranda has the highest number of homicides per per capita of anywhere in the world. Mm. Um and so, yeah, and then the, the ambassador just shoots him um, and presumably dead. Um, and so, Again, yeah. So Latin American, like the direct use of much closer direct to, to direct use of violence rather than kind of much more outsourced and systematic in the way it would be in a more developed country like France, I think. So I think I would take it. So, I mean, I take Alex's point about the Latin American context. I suppose I would take it slightly differently in that it's not, I mean, it's not really about Latin America per se, but rather about the bourgeoisie in a kind of particular historic phase for which the kind of the Latin American backdrop of um, 
of kind of uh, chaos and um, you know military usurpation and terrorist insurgency provides a more um, fitting account of that instability or the inability of the bourgeoisie to rule, I guess, to kind of conduct its business and to go about its um, its life with kind of um, without you know without the hypocrisy and with being able just to do the things that it wants to do so yeah. instead there's the cocaine smuggling there's the kind of needing to deal with the military but the military don't follow you know don't kind of uh, follow your orders and so it's that kind of i think it's this kind of capturing the bourgeois you know trying to capture the bourgeoisie in this very um particular historic condition where well, they I mean, don't, it's, it's a point about they the don't birth. really rule, but they don't, yeah. but they're not. They've neither have they been overthrown. Uh, so I think it captures that. It's that I think that is kind of captured in the absurdity, the dreams within dreams, the political instability interrupting their, um, you know, their ordinary kind of life of wanting just to perform this very basic ritual, which I have to I, say is a very fine ritual. And and it's a and it's a. I mean, you know, it's almost I think of a, a trope, but you know that the truth of capitalism can be seen much more nakedly in the periphery, right, of, of class rule, where it's more obscured in more developed countries where you have a more integrated working class, etc. And I think Buñuel is, I'm, I'm pretty sure conscious of this, you know, it's important that he was working in the 1920s and 30s, he was a big supporter of the Republicans in the in the Spanish Civil War, and so lived through a transition of from a kind of older bourgeoisie into the bourgeoisie of the, of the kind of um, post-war settlement, right? Um, and and then mm. and now and then is making this film kind of in the wake of sixty eight and whatever. So um, I'm, I'm, I would imagine that he's kind of conscious of this of of a French bourgeoisie which is at least superficially much more um, organized and much more um, committed to a social compromise um, in a way that the Latin American one wouldn't have been. And that kind of shows the you know the contrast. I think is deliberate. Yeah, I mean that's an interesting point, right? He was in it. He born in 1900 so he was in his early 70s when when making this film and lived through obviously the preceding um 71 years um and yeah would have seen i guess those those changes also he worked quite a lot in in mexico he's spanish mexican yeah um so yeah so maybe that i mean i guess i hadn't really thought how important that um that the fact that that the ambassador was latin american was and that's why we have a latin american we're, we're, correspondent we're on this show to, to remind us well, and the Mexican point actually is important, and I had forgotten about this. But you know, the Mexico's nineteen sixty eight is is very important, very bloody. Mm. Um, you know, uh, university students massacred, and so on. So it's like an experience that he would be familiar with. So. So I guess the, the the title of the film. I was trying to th- think what the what the discreet charm um, actually is that that Bournel is trying to convince us of or or present to us about the bourgeoisie in this. Um, you know, but I guess it is the, the post sixty eight bourgeoisie. If if we want to kind of frame that that specific kind of moment, any any ideas on this? What is the discreet charm of the bourgeoisie in the early seventies? So it, it's not. I wouldn't say it's the early 70s. I mean, I think it's the the inspiration for the film is the 68 backdrop and all of that, you know. But I don't think it's like it's not specifically about the middle classes or the bourgeoisie of the time. I think the claims made are, you know, I think it goes deeper if it go, you know, if it goes anywhere at all. Um but I think the discrete charm is the um is pre- I think I mean maybe this is wrong, but I think it's precisely the ineffectuality you know, and the kind of the um, the hypocrisy. And so that scene where the main character, the ambassador kind of comes in and he's so kind of, you know, he's trim, well-dressed, distinguished gentleman, kind of uh, aging, but still kind of vital and clearly, you know, um, you know, has a tailor and all of that and played by, is it, is his name, is it played by Carlos Acosta? Is that the name of the, um, I can't remember if that's the name of the actor or the, um, or the character anyway. Um, but he's, you know, kind of, he fits the image perfectly. And then he flips open the briefcase and says, starts talking about cocaine smuggling. 
And <laughs> I thought that, you know, that's the kind of the discreet charm, you know, um, yeah, Fernando Rey, that's the name of the guy, the name of the the actor playing the ambassador, Rafael Acosta. I thought that was a discreet charm. So it's kind of like the guy who can get past the, um, you know, he can smuggle cocaine easily because he looks distinguished and is, in fact, distinguished. Um, he has to resort to cocaine smuggling because, you know, of the circumstances, the reduced circumstances, I suppose, which he's struggling against. Um and it's, uh, but he's really kind of what he really wants is just to have kind of a civilized dinner and conversation, which doesn't go too far, isn't too disruptive, isn't too kind of, uh, you know, wild or difficult with his friends. And there's the discreet charm right there. Yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a, an early wink to this when they go into the, the scene where they go to a restaurant because they, they got the date wrong, the dinner party at, at the person's house. They go to a di- dinner, um, to a restaurant and the, you know, the patron of the restaurant, the, the owner of the restaurant has died. And then the, the women all run off to go see the, the corpse, you know, like what's going on there. And, and one of the husbands shouts after him, you know, like, like c'est indiscret, right? It, it's indiscreet. Um, and so that's a kind of uh, a little a little wing to the title. I think it's the only time that discretion or indiscretion is actually mentioned explicitly. Yeah, I guess they they are quite. I guess they're they're, they're charming, or it, it it tries to frame what being charming is within within their their world, which is you know they're all they dress up and and they you know they have a, a jolly nice time. They just kind of go and have lunch at one on a Saturday or or dinner on a Friday evening um always at people's homes well well that's the first thing that they, they want to do they want to go around to each other's homes and have that kind of classic dinner party one time they do end up in a in an inn just uh, nearby because they've turned up on the wrong day um so yeah there is something about the you know they're, they're all socially very adept whether they're whether they're discreet or not there is certain, there are some indiscretions in the film there is the um affair between the, the ambassador and the wife of one of his of his friends and you kind of see you know there's one scene where they're kind of sitting on the sofa together and and he kind of is stroking the back of her neck and so like, okay so something's going on there um there's what, another scene where all the friends turn up at, at another couple's house and they kind of decide to escape through the window and go out into the garden to have sex rather than welcoming their guests so there are some discretions and um, some some indiscreet uh, actions, but I think yeah, it is it is it's not really a comedy of manners because it's not like things go wrong because people transgress the rules of what it is to be charming and a good host, except for obviously like running away when when guests arrive. Perhaps that could be a faux pas of some sort. But yeah, I think I mean that's what that's the way I sort of saw it is that there is a um, yeah, it's not entirely critical. I wouldn't say of of the of the uh, the bourgeois life because it does seem if everything went well you get to have a nice dry martini you get to have some nice lamb well I, you might get shot by some terrorists but you know if that doesn't happen you'll have a nice evening i think the tone's a bit more kind of cynical you know again it's not like a scathing biting criticism it's more kind of like a smirking cynical look at it but i think there's a there's a thing about discretion i think that connects to repression um in that to be discreet means to you know, hold oneself together to not um, go out and follow one's instincts. Um, you know, you have to kind of not cough too loudly and, and you know, have these all these manners, which actually, you know, Freud um, says it's in, in civilization, it's discontents, right? You need a certain amount of repression because you need to be sit at a table and not fart, right? And before, you know, civilization, people would just fart all the time, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so there's all this repression that, that goes in um, to being, you know, to having this discreet charm. Um, and inadvertently, I stumbled upon something because in my head, I kept accidentally calling this uh, the eternal sunshine of the bourgeoisie, um, kind of referring to the eternal sunshine of, of, uh, of the spotless mind. And actually, you know, to have that eternal spot sunshine of the spotless mind means to be kind of wiped away of any, um, wiped away of any concerns of neuroses of anxieties, you know, your memories are wiped in that film. Um, mm. and, and you don't have all this trauma of previous relationships and all the ways that you get hurt and pick up baggage along your life. Um, and the, you know, the bourgeoisie that's seen here, it doesn't have an eternal, you know, it doesn't have a, a, a spotless mind, but it probably aims to a certain degree at a certain eternal sunshine because everything is meant to just be like all fine on the surface, right? We go to our dinner parties, everything's kind of held together. The dirty business is done 
by other people. It's outsourced to the police or the army. Um, it, the violence is carried out elsewhere. Yes, they have indiscretions and hypocrisies, but you know that's all kept quiet and and hidden from view. And we present this nice facade, right? Hence the hypocrisy, which is the central thread of the film. And so you know, there's the the um, repression is central to that. Right. And I, I suspect, you know, Buñuel is kind of doing this in a kind of more Freudian psychoanalytic mode, look kind of um, to a certain extent critiquing that repression that always goes on. And this kind of repression or the frustration links to, again, the other kind of um, motif of the film of never getting your dinner. <laughs> right. Um, that, that, that like desire is never realized. They never can get the object of desire. Um because they're always frustrated by it in some way or another. So there's something there going on. Yeah, no, I, th I think I think so. But I, I guess the maybe so kind of move on to kind of the bourgeoisie of the present day or, or one thing which I think if the film was made today or remade today, I think the if it if really the central theme is hypocrisy, then the presentation would be way more didactic or or quote yeah. unquote cutting, right? Because you would have these scenes of like oh, look, all these people are completely hypocritical. They they are like, they're very polite to their friends and then they kind of close the door, go into the, the kitchen with the servants and then they kind of, you know, start attacking them or something like that. But, well, we, but, we, have a, but we have examples of those movies, right? We've got Triangle of Sadness. We've got The Menu. We've got Parasite. I'm not sure they're quite that crude. They are very different from from this kind of satire. Um, but they aren't quite they aren't quite that crude, George. No, okay. Well, maybe, maybe a, a um, um, I think all in all of those films, though, there is more violence. Though the characters are kind of, you know, are put in a position where they're. It's made quite obvious that the the sort of ways that they're expected to behave are are not. They realise there is some hypocrisy there. Whereas I'm not sure that the characters of this film perhaps do. I'm not well. I think hmm. so, so. You know, Triangle of Sadness is more sophisticated because it. Um, pokes at the viewer of this film as well of, of that film not just satirizing the bourgeoisie like look at these rich assholes aren't they assholes right it doesn't just do that if it did that it'd be a pretty mediocre film and i think it's a little bit better than that um you know the way that after they're shipwrecked I, we may have talked about this on the podcast before. we did yeah we, but yeah we have spoken a bit about triangle before but yeah you know they're shipwrecked and the 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 servant actually comes to be in charge then and acts as brutally as anyone else does right so that's that's good it punctures any kind of identity politics notion that it's like oh it's because these are these white people rich white people they act badly because they're white and once you know brown people are in charge they'll be totally different um so you know it, it's more sophisticated than um then I guess some of the kind of cruder readings have it, you know, like I think the menu is pretty, pretty blunt. Um, and um, we yeah, it is. But it's also, it's also a different re I don't know how much there's in this, but it occurred to me, there's a very different relationship to food. Right. So, you know, that kind of the whole point of the menu is it's set up around um, the food experience of our day, right. Which is something that you buy into if you're, um, of a certain kind of class, of a certain kind of wealth, um, as well as it's something which belongs to the age of kind of Instagram and um, eating out, I guess you know, kind of in fancy in a fancy restaurant in a, in um, in a fancy city. Except this is so fancy that it takes place on an island, you know, kind of far away. But there's an entirely different relationship with food. The fixation with the precision and detail and deference to the chef. And his like, um, yeah. you know, kind of military, military, militaristically organized kind of kitchen is entirely different from the relationship with food in the Bunel movie, right? Where it's kind of made clear that it's, um, you know, it's a very kind of classy meal, but they, you know, the kind of the characters in that film would be entirely, they just, there's no way they would relate to the, um, the reverence or kind of um, at least nominal respect for the chef and the kind of food that a particular chef serves the way there is in the menu. Well, obviously, yeah, the menu, I, I think that's right. The menu is extreme, right? But I mean, everybody knows even at a lesser sta you know, stage of like going to your favorite gastro pub in the UK or your Instagrammable kind of location for street food, everybody relates to, has that relationship with food, I think, at least in, you know, kind of many parts of the world which is new, you know, in a way it's different from the past. 
Yeah, and it's it's um, you know detraditionalized, right? So everything needs to be optimized, and it's new combinations and exotic experiences. The chef in the menu is basically Steve Jobs. It's how the kind of bourgeois me- mainstream media treats a figure like Steve Jobs and all the Silicon Valley sycophants. It's basically this genius who is so dedicated to his craft of making this unbelievable experience and making something completely new um, and who's kind of single-minded and hardworking and rises from nothing to create this thing out of nothing. You know, it is the, it's the kind of, kind of the new vision of the, of the, um, risk-taking industrialist of, of of yesteryear now comes to be embodied as the entrepreneur, as the entrepreneur, right? As Super the genius entrepreneur, entrepreneur. Yeah. And, and and yeah. the and the chef kind of performs that role, or or, or kind of is homologous yeah. a bit to that, which is very different from the bourgeoisie of the of mm. uh, discreet charm. And the consumers yeah. of that are different as well, right? So the consumers in the menu, for example, who are consuming the Steve Jobs of cooking's food, are like there for this to experience the technological advancement that is presented to them, you know, in the form of food. And and it's different because the, the, the bourgeoisie of 1972 and Buñuel's film it, are just kind of going about their food and they're ordering, you know, they earn er, order like a, a terrine de, de lapin, right? Like, or, or de lièvre, like a, a, a rabbit. Uh, rabbit pâté. Rabbit pâté, yeah. And like, it's, it's like, oh, they always make it too salty, you know, but it's like, they always make it too salty. It's just kind of, food that everyone's familiar with it's the same recipes it's much more kind of rooted in a culinary tradition versus this this other yeah. thing and, and it's not technologified it's not you know yeah i i think that is that is an important difference if 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 the film were made today that you know because the chef today is the combination of the artist and the extremely dedicated um kind of entrepreneur as you as you guys were saying and it's not like they're not gourmands in in the discreet charm of the bourgeoisie they mm. yeah when they make their order in the restaurant it's like oh yeah i would you know i'd have some caviar but i like my own caviar best and i'm gonna ha-. you know they're just the the list of things which is ordered i mean at the same time they you know the one character i think it's the ambassador says i like i like red wine i'll have that even if i'm having fish and that's obviously a potential culinary faux pas maybe but not the, anymore though well those yeah i think are, it would have been in, gone now in 72 but it's yeah i think and that is related to the fact that it is you know, the, it's the social um, aspect of the ritual, which is particularly important in this film, rather than the the culinary. It's not like, oh, we went out and we had these delicious things. It, it might be like we went out and we went to this, you know, to this great restaurant and we had nice food. But it's who did you go with? And, you know, what did you, you know, who who were the, the people that you were able to? To invite who did to you go along. yeah who did you see who were the people you were with you know did you chat to this person what's the social what's the gossip on the social scene rather than oh you went to that restaurant led by that chef but the food is still central to the story i mean i guess that's the point right it's still kind of an organized ritual around um a meal just, just one quick observation on this in the menu there is the couple who are much more traditional bourgeois right they're not um the, the kind of new, uh, whatever. Yeah, so you, you've got the right? silicon. So who, are there, who are just there for... You've got the techies. Food. Yeah. You've got the, um, you've got the kind of the food critic Yeah, types. you've got the food obsessive and, who's like... Yeah, you've got the food obsessive, the creepy food obsessive yeah. guy. And then you've got the uh, the kind of wealthier, more patrician, like you say, traditional bourgeoisie. Who are just, um, who've been there like three times, four times, and just like go all the time and just eat there and don't even care about the food. And, you know, the chef is offended. Yes. He's like, I'm doing this. And you're yes, not even thinking yes. or talking about the food, right? <laughs> yes. And they're much more, yes. they're like a vision of the traditional traditional bourgeois yeah, or bourgeoisie of the yes. 50 years before so they buy in so they come to the they come to this restaurant because it's the done thing for a certain class of people but they don't buy into the ideology around it which everybody else does yeah so i don't know this might be a, a bit of a leap but if we are prepared to kind of to say that you know dinner is a central um aspect of like the bourgeoisie at, at, at leisure um if if you will that kind of you know it's consumption um but it's also kind of social as well so it's a clear and it's a ritual which has important which has a um, very high level of importance um i don't know i guess the question then is what you know if if we if we are correct that this film if it were to be remade would have all of these additional considerations around the ritual of dining or that that focus on the food the chef all this sort of stuff you know does does this can we draw any con- conclusions about how um the bourgeoisie have changed like i guess are we all bourgeois now is that 
is that the way to to kind of conclude here that we you know there's been a much there's been an opening up of the possibility of access to this kind of ritual and you know not like everyone can go to the restaurant in the menu but you know many people now can pick up their their phone see on instagram this you know this place and try and try and go there or have that high kind of high dining experience i don't know well alex is the bourgeois foodie so he should i think he should answer the question he's the most who's bought into this weird food ideology no, I, I I haven't, but I, I do love eating and eating with friends and, and enjoying food and, and talking about food. Um, but um, and also offending people of different nationalities by criticizing their food, whatever. Um, but it, like, you know, telling a Nigerian that Ghanaian jollof is best and seeing the reaction anyway. Um, Why are you doing I, this? This is I thought you were going to go through a whole list there. And just, I, I, well, I, I do have have, all of our listeners, you know, or saying or saying that Chilean ceviche is better than or Serbian kebabs aren't properly spiced, which is right. Untrue. No, Serbian kebabs are, are, are you know, chivapi is like super inferior compared to Turkish. Like they, they need the Ottomans to come back and take over the Balkans because Jesus Christ, teach those Slavs something. Um, anyway, the the the, <laughs> the the bourgeois. I mean, look, there's. I think there's probably no more slippery term in in, in political discourse than bourgeois and bourgeoisie, other than middle class. You know, I mean, middle class can be anything from like an American steel worker to like a top financier. Um, <laughs> they're all middle class, which basically asks the begs the question: you know, who isn't um, bourgeois? Then and it, it leaves basically the subaltern um, or the you know the oligarch, perhaps. Um, so anyway, that maybe maybe that is suggesting in its own right that we all kind of are bourgeois today. I did want to talk a bit. Uh, you guys, I'm sure, have something more to say about that. I just want to talk about kind of anti anti bourgeois sentiment because I think maybe it might yeah. be a better place to start. Um, which is that like the the, the anti bourgeois um, sentiment that's portrayed through like Buñuel's film is, um, I think. It was a much more anti-bourgeois time than ours is, right? In terms of just the tropes of being anti-bourgeois were much more obvious and much more forthright and much more political, right? Um, and that applied both in terms of there being an active socialist politics, which was anti-bourgeois in terms of political economic relations, but also um, anti-bourgeois in a kind of cultural sense because there was still a lingering kind of bourgeois traditionalism, which they could, it could be poked at, right? So that's the more artistic critique as like it is put in Boltanski and Capello's The New Spirit of Capitalism. Um, but this idea which, um, you know, funnels the kind of 60s revolt ideas of self-expression um, of, of a certain individualism and so on against the bourgeoisie, which is seen as repressed, is seen as kind of controlling, anal, um, hidebound, um, calculating, mean-spirited, uh, focused only on money, only knows profit, doesn't know anything about art and true values. It's a kind of almost romantic sort of critique. And therefore, by extension, a kind of aristocratic critique of of the bourgeoisie. So both those lines of, yeah. of criticism were alive then in the 1960s, 1970s, um, and, you know, in the preceding period as well, much more than they are today. Um, it, today, it's, it's different, and we can get into the, how it's different. <laughs> Yeah, no, I think the, I guess there's a, there's a long tradition of um, bourgeois self-criticism. Um, this Flaubert um, line that the sight of the bourgeoisie made him want to simultaneously weep and vomit. Um, and who was known to sign his letters in Latin, Gustavus Flaubertius, uh, bourgeois, bourgeois Um So yeah, I mean, there is, I guess that's, that's probably related to that, you know, that fraction or that part of the bourgeoisie that sees it sees itself as um, <clears throat> kind of most limited by that kind of Protestant ethic and that Calvinist um, need to need to be a good a good boy or a good girl, otherwise it will show you that that God doesn't love you and you're going to hell forever. Which you know, I guess, is a pretty good incentive to to be uh, thrifty. You, you and, are you are going to hell, George. Don't worry. Well, better to rule in hell than serve in heaven um so yeah i, I could <clears throat> i could make a, a hell heaven or whatever 
if I if I tried anyway I feel like I'm I'm I, no Alex I think that is a really good point right that the what are the terms on which the you can have a critique of the bourgeoisie today there's obviously a lot of like clarifying what that term means and that is not an easy um task um but yeah, yeah it does spoken, it, I mean we've spoken about it before I'm not sure it exists in a meaningful sense the way it used to and certainly not in the sense that they would constitute like a um you know, kind of uh, a power base um, within society. I mean, maybe a voting block, you know, but not like, a, not the kind of, um, not as a class, I think, in the way that they might have. So, you know, there might be like a wealth, well-to-do German who owns like some kind of, I don't know, engineering firm that manufactures lenses, you know, a small engineering firm that manufactures highly specialist lenses to go to China or something. And he drives a Mercedes and has a nice yeah. big car and this kind of thing and kind of has regular holidays in Spain or whatever. But it's not like, um, you know, I think just the nature of uh, corporate capitalism and the era in which we are means that those that kind of person, which I think is classically kind of European, um, doesn't really, it just, they aren't as numerous, they aren't as influential, they aren't as organized, and they aren't as conscious of themselves as being kind of a distinct national group with their own kind of interests, economic and political, as they would have been in the past. And I think that's probably true in the US as well, because the old waspy kind of... Um, you know, East Coast elite. I mean, they've been kind of uh, chiseled away since the 1970s. I mean, you know, that's politics since the 1970s is edging those people out of power. Well, and I mean, you know, the managerial revolution, which by the time that this film is made is, um, has already kind of fully, almost fully it's played itself out. But, you know, the breaking up of ownership and control, which, you know, already starts beginning to happen at the end of the 19th century, um, is is a, a major factor. So, you know, it's only smaller capitalists or medium-sized capitalists like the type of person that Phil just described very well, um, who is an owner and operator. Um, and the question of repression and anality is very important in this, you know, I mean, anality in, in, in the sense of, you know, holding on to your poo, right, and getting driving some pleasure from from holding on, um, which is, you know, holding is that on what to you do? Um, no, no, I'm, I'm, I just let it all go. It's disgusting. Um, the, the, <laughs> the hippie, uh, the, you know, the, that is a, someone who, um, because they're an owner operator, right? Um, there's no kind of principal agent problem. They are responsible for their own money and making those investments. So, you know, they, they suppress their own consumption to a certain degree to accumulate, right? And that's a classic bourgeois, which is described by, by, by Marx and Weber and, you know, kind of very, obvious figure of classical sociology, whereas by the 1970s, and certainly by the time of, of our time, you know, the that figure hasn't disappeared from the scene, but is the much more frequent one is the kind of managerial, upper managerial professional, right, who manages and might manage a lot of money and might earn stock for doing that job. But fundamentally, they're not the ones controlling their own money, they're acting on they're an agent on behalf of some other principle, right? Um, and that changes, I think, the psychological profile. You know, they're kind of bureaucrats rather than um, this kind of repressive figure. Um, so I think there's there's a whole different world that emerges from that. And, and the, the line of criticism will be different. The line of criticism will be, yeah. um, the, to a certain extent, the critique of the PMC, though, you know, I think that is a whole, another word which is super slippery and means a whole bunch of different things to different people. Um, but nevertheless, you know, the, the, the critique of the contemporary corporate manager in one of these oligopolistic corporations um would be the, the 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 form that the bourgeoisie takes today and they're they're different you know they might be buy into like diversity initiatives and um are much more um yeah much more kind of a bureaucratic figure um, but there will be but there will yeah. be tropes right so you know you will you've got the kind of rise and grind stuff that kind of yeah. neo-protestant ethic which is embedded into Instagram and is absorbed in all sorts of new, you know, new contexts. And it's kind of made extreme, you know, like you got to drink your kale smoothie at 5am and meditate and then journal and then do 5,000 crunches. You know I mean? It's extreme or like the rich, you know, the food thing, you know, like in the met satirized in the menu that the classic kind of bourgeois ritual of the, um, the dinner, the consumption of the kind of uh, highly prepared food is turned into something so kind of extreme. So those tropes of like of bourgeois civilization and life, they kind of survive in different contexts, but also kind of ramped up 
to absurd extremes that is, in fact, in reality itself, right? Right. Mm. And that's, that's right. And there's two faces, right? The face of production and the face of consumption. What is this new bourgeois doing in, in, in each sphere? And, you know, as you made reference to the menu there and in their moment of consumption, but the constant measurement calculation of the traditional bourgeois figure, right, who's holding tightly onto their money um, and they invest and they don't consume so as they can accumulate for its own sake, you know, and it's, it's completely deranged. Um, the, the figure that gets transposed today into a completely different realm, right, often into consumption, because they're not doing this um, at, a, at a corporate level in, in work, in production. It gets, you know, measurement gets rolled out into kind of Fitbit and measuring how many steps you do that day and how much you've run and the constant monitoring of health um, and trying to maximize and optimize your own health and life. And it kind of gets turned inward to the self rather than kind of to a certain extent outward it, it, into production. And I think that's yeah, a that's... weird thing that happens. And it's actually ripe for, for more satire. I mean, it's been satirized, but I think that you could do a lot more. Yeah. I mean, I think that is, that is crucial, right? If the, if the bourgeoisie is no longer driving society forward through production, then the sorts of ideas um, that, that that social group has will be will be very very different i was thinking whether you would if i mean i would definitely go in and see it because i'm 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 like target market for this but like the, the discreet charm of the pmc that would be a good i'd, I'd go and watch that it, it would be a very different set of kind of social tell us mores. tell us what would the discreet what would it look like how would you well, do it so if george I, was directing or writing the script what would it be like well i think that the central conceit would be the thing that stops them from eating dinner themselves is is themselves like they are not able to go to this restaurant because it's problematic and then they go to this person's house and there's you know nobody can eat any of the food which is being served because of uh, allergies or intolerance or ideological reasons and so yeah. it's like and so it's a self you know it's a contradictory class but it's its own internalization of the the rules that <laughs> that kind of got got its place um in so who would, capitalism. so where would it be set right and who would be interrupting who would it be interrupt who would be in the equivalent of the terrorists or the military hmm. i have to th i'll have to think about this a little bit this is no you, you know, gotta you gotta tell us well, now so, so i i no. think like i think for it to work it can't just be the kind of more like lefty pmc because otherwise it's just portlandia and and everybody knows that and it's too easy actually to satirize to really get into yeah. it it has to be much more kind of centrist boring mainstream corporate types pmc but who have all these kind of affectations sign up to you know call out there's some element of call out culture without full endorsement of any kind of too much of the kind of radical claims of, you know, um, decolonize, for example. Um, so there'd be, it has to be kind of somewhere in between, you know, maybe, maybe they try talk up their trauma about something, but the trauma visits them in the scene because, you know, they, they, they talk up their trauma as the reason for justifying themselves. So I was kind of tweeting about this the other day. So if you read those listener and you, I feel like I'm repeating myself, I'm sorry. The, the idea is assume, that assume you know, nobody reads your tweets. No, that's that's, that's a fair. That's fair. Yes, yeah. yeah. I agree. Yeah. 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 Um. So you know, trauma and meritocracy are actually pretty closely tied because trauma becomes a kind of self-justifying mechanism, um, and way of seeking distinction and status at a point when kind of old hereditary notions are completely taboo. You know, you can't say I inherited this money or I'm. I've been bred to rule or something like that, right? Completely absurd. No one buys that. Um, what you have to say is that I've, I've struggled and I've worked hard to get this. You know, I'm, I'm waking up at five in the morning to have my smoothie and blah, 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 and, and, and do a thousand sit-ups before I go to work. If that doesn't work for you, because maybe you're just a middling person just doing par for the course in your career and life, you haven't really achieved anything, um, and you can't really play that hustle kind of card um, or, or point to some obvious great success. You know, you're just kind of a middle manager, blah, blah, blah. What you have to do is play the negative instead. And you say, I have been traumatized. I have been traumatized because I, like, I'm half Hawaiian or something, and because of the color of my skin, people have treated me badly, or because of some childhood abuse that you've suffered, or some other bullshit that you make. I mean, I don't mean to say childhood abuse is, is bullshit but you make up some bullshit right um you, you kind of talk up some trauma and that then becomes your justification for uh for you in a meritocracy because you have merit because you've struggled against and overcome this trauma and therefore are justified in being a bourgeois because otherwise it's like well why the fuck mm -hmm. are you here mate you know yeah i mean i think that it points to i mean i think your example of, of being half hawaiian is, is not a 
not a good one in some ways because I have a picture of Hawaii as like this this uh, island paradise, which uh, might or might not be true. I think that I think there are fires there at the moment. So apologies, any yeah, it's, Hawaiian it's burning down. But... Global boiling. That's a shame because it's you know I have, I would like one day to visit and it it just seems amazing. Um, anyway, but my point was going to be I, I guess if that is tr- true, what you're saying, Alex, which I think there is a a lot of things which you know probably are, then it's the bourgeoisie is not very self confident at the moment that you have to like the way that you establish your merit and maybe that's what you know. There's always you know intense competition, but it's like through a negative or through the overcoming of a negative. There's no kind of you know here's here's what i've achieved or here's how i've i've i'm I'm a captain of industry or whatever but instead it's it's more i guess looking at you know what are the personal factors which which um have been overcome which i guess does speak to some sort of resilience perhaps of some sort but it does seem whatever happened whatever happened to the strong silent type you know captain of industry type yeah as tony soprano asks very early on gary cooper what happened to gary Gary cooper Cooper? exactly yeah i mean not not great for pod podcasting but yeah a, a valid um question i guess just to maybe to to round things up as a kind of um a dessert almost or a a uh, uh, you know, one of those courses if you get that you get that you're not even expecting, right? So it's it's one of those kind of um, bonus. usually an amuse bouche or like some kind of uh, digestif, that... something that goes with the digestif. The really old yeah, fashioned one amuse... is a sorbet, which like is a palate cleanser between yeah. meals. Yeah, but that's yeah. between meals. It's not yeah. really a surprise yeah. at the end. I'm 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 not a sorbet guy. I just don't. I just it's a it's a it's a wisp of a taste. How about I mean, mass I know murder? Supposed to you be. know. Mass murder. Mass murder. Well, you know, that's what happens in what the menu. That's their about? little surprise. <laughs> oh, right. Um, that's no, true. I'm, they I mean, get con- they are consummated as part of a tremendous artistic culinary experience. So what are you suggesting would be the equivalent for podcasting, Alex? No, I'm just, uh, I just to go on the record, I'm against mass murder. I mean, it's well, yeah. we, we, we tell all it's our no patrons good. to go me, fuck me themselves. <laughs> that's that's the equivalent. No, we don't. So, we, don't. we love you. We don't. Say, like, yeah, we don't. Because we... Who is the most dinner party guy of the three of us? Because we're you definitely know. me. I do like I'm the most civilized. I'm the most debonair. I'm the most sophisticated. I'm the most charismatic. I'm the most handsome. I'm the most. I'm the guy with the kind of best taste and certainly the uh, most discreet charm. The most discreet <laughs> charm. You can very easily miss it it's, <laughs> if you're not looking. Um, no, I guess I guess there is like. Yeah, because this was just kind of going around my head, like, you know, you don't want to blame it all on COVID and like every day was a dinner party before COVID. But it seems like, you know, whatever happened to the to the to the kind of the the, the idea dinner party type thing. You're not wrong. I I do. I do feel like I did it more before, I have to say. And maybe that's changes in my own, you know, in my own life in the last few years, but I do, I, I don't know, man, I do wonder sometimes if, you know, if there work, if there are kind of surreptitious effects to people's social lives that they're barely even aware of. Cause I mm. did, I have wondered about I, that. I, I, I think that's right. Cause I was doing them before COVID and then we moved into a new place and then was quite excited about hosting people and like had space to host people and was quite excited. And then COVID happened and, and completely fell out of the habit of having people around for dinner. Um, whether it's like a big feast, which I happen to have done like two months ago, um, or even just kind of a smaller kind of get together where you cook something, but nothing, don't go kind of all out. Um, and I've, yeah, kind of forgotten about it. Fallen out. It's not, it's not uh, routine anymore at all. So Yeah. I was just thinking through, like, I guess I have been invited to like a number of of, of of dinner parties that people have held but not invited to to like another one so maybe it's just a, a fact of like my uh extreme it's your um, discreet like, charm because your charm is so discreet they yeah, don't invite well, exactly, you back exactly just i mean that's you know you don't make the, the cut the second time around after you've um you know drunk all the wine and and just been banging on about fucking brexit and covid and they're like <laughs> yeah actually mate you know just um maybe uh maybe don't come to this one no i think you know just just to kind of you know to to wrap things up i think these you know the idea with with doing these films is to kind of take a take a film and find a way into to kind of considering a concept and i think this this one was kind of bourgeois the bourgeoisie and kind of food as well i think there's we did left-wing terrorism last time so i think it's a good 
you know, it's a good it's a good way in. But actually, the bourgeoisie as the historical changes, the, the number of ways in this, which this word's been used, the the, the Wallerstein piece that we which put in the the footnote, the show notes. Yeah, it's a, it requires more than just one one film for us to to crack that nut. Um, yeah, but I think there's a good line in that in that um, in that Wallerstein piece, which is about how it's difficult to have difficult to tell a story without the pr- protagonist. And the bourgeoisie is histories or modern histories, capitalism's protagonists. So if you don't have that class functioning in the same way, what sort of stories um, can you tell? And this is a, a this film is a weird story because the protagonists don't <laughs> don't manage to, to to drive the action forward at all. Yeah, there is so, indeed nice, no plot. Nice, they yeah. are not a, they are not protagonists. Yeah, yeah nice. Uh, maybe a foreshadowing of a much more distributed um, power in society, um, kind of cor- across kind of corporate networks rather than these uh, captain of industry types. Well, maybe we'll leave that there. Distributed pro- protagonism. You know, mm. everyone's a, everyone's a protagonist. You now. see, now you're now you're gilding the lily. Okay, ah, you gotta you gotta overdo it sometimes, right? You gotta you gotta take that that final shot. You gotta gotta go for it. But yeah. Anyway, work. Um, let us know if uh, you have some thoughts on this. I'm happy to discuss it. Maybe we, if you want us to do an episode on what is the bourgeoisie? Does the bourgeoisie still exist? Is that the right term? Please, um, please don't ask point. us to do that episode. <laughs> but well, if you do have any suggestions for films or movies yeah. you would like us to do a movie night on, dear listeners, please give us a suggestion. And they don't need to be, as indeed with um, with the discreet charm, they don't need to be Anglophone movies as long as they're reasonably easily available on, on the interwebs. We would be happy to canvas some suggestions, sir. Yeah. Um, but, you know, hope you've enjoyed it. Thank you very much for listening. As always, tell your friends. Make sure you rate and review the podcast, and we will catch you next time. Catch you later. Bye-bye.